Good morning. If you find your seats, we'll get started. As you find your seats, you turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 18 again. And that's Philippians 1 chapter, or Philippians 1 verse 18. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, starting in verse 18, Paul writes, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. That it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue, continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Pray. Dear Lord, our Father, God, we praise you, Lord. We glorify you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, again, for Paul's writing, Lord. We pray that this would be true for us, Lord, as we read Paul and see his heart and, and see his intimate thoughts and this, this, this conflict within his soul that, that through Paul's ministry, Lord, that, that, that our joy would grow in the faith and, and that your son would be glorified. God, I pray that we could say with the same conviction that Paul says, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, I pray that you would just eliminate any distractions this morning, Lord. That you would, through your spirit, open our hearts to hear what Paul is telling us, inspired words from you, Lord, what you are are, are telling us, Lord, through your word. That if there's anything else that we are living for that's not Christ, Lord, that we would turn from that. That we would turn to your son. That our identity would be nothing but Christ and Christ alone. God, I pray that would be true for each and every one of us this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be start, uh, seated. Uh, before I get started this morning, uh, I want to point out um, a statement, maybe, uh, uh, maybe most of you have read this statement or seen this statement. It's a statement that uh, went out last week and last Saturday with my name pretty uh, prevalent on it uh, as one of the initial signers of this statement. Uh, it's called the Bakersfield Statement. Um, it's a public statement against an organization called the Influencers. Um, now... I'm not pointing this out necessarily because I'm asking you to sign the statement. I'll just leave that up to you. Your personal convictions, you can read through that statement and uh, make a, a personal decision on your part. 
But I do want to explain why I thought this statement was necessary. And I'm going to do that next Sunday night at uh, Sunday night service. And, and so here's what I'm asking and why I bring it up uh, today. Uh, before you come to any conclusions about this statement and my part uh, or my involvement with the statement, uh, I would just ask if you would come next Sunday night really to hear two things. My heart, uh, why I thought this was necessary, but, but even the reason I thought it was necessary. And so I would just ask that. Um, if you have questions about that, I have met with a number of people from our church and a lot of people not from our church uh, again, about this and my involvement in it, I, I'd be more than willing to, to talk with you. Uh, maybe come next Sunday night, and if you have questions after that, um, give me a call, and we can schedule a meeting, and, and we can talk about it. So uh, I just want to bring that up, but I don't want to get distracted this morning. Uh, today, I want to continue where we left off last week. I want to be right back in the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul's in prison. He writes this letter to a church that, that I hope you see now this, this church, this local church, this body of believers in Philippi that he absolutely loves. And he exp he's explaining to this church why he is joy-filled. He's sending a letter that, that despite the circumstances that he is in, he, he wants this church to know that he is joy-filled, and he wants to, to show them why he is joy-filled. And this is one of the, the main purposes of the book of uh, Philippians. There's a number of of, of purposes, but one of the main purposes to explain why he's so so joy-filled. And, and we saw last week that, that Paul moves from the past and present uh, situation that he is in, and he's, he's starting to explain uh, his confidence about the future. And so today he's going to continue with that. He's explaining why he is so confident about the future, in fact, so joyfully confident about the future. So I have three points of the sermon this morning. It's Paul's confidence— Paul's conviction, and Paul's conflict. Paul's confidence, Paul's conviction, and Paul's conflict. And I don't do this very often, but those all start with C's. Just realize that. Uh, so let's start with Paul's confidence. Uh, this is going to be somewhat of a review of last week. If you would look at verse 19, it says this. For I know, and we talked about that word know and, and the implications here. Paul is confident when he says this. For I know that through two things, that through your prayers, the, the faithful prayers of this church, this local church, a small group of people, this church at Philippi that is praying consistently for Paul, that, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, through those two things, Paul says this, this will turn out for my deliverance. In Greek, that word is soteri, which is the word we get salvation from, so this could be translated, this will turn out for my salvation. Paul was confident. He was confident that he will be delivered. He was confident that he would be saved. But as we learned last week, deliverance or salvation doesn't necessarily mean he was going to be saved from prison or he was going to live. In fact, verse 20 makes that very clear. Look at verse 20. It says this, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. When Paul says this will turn out for my deliverance, he's not necessarily saying deliverance from jail or prison or, 
or house arrest. In fact, last week I quoted a, a theologian named uh, Gordon Fee, and he writes this, the, the very last phrase of verse 20 alerts us to the startling thought that Paul's deliverance does not depend on whether he lives or dies. To Paul, one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to be released from jail, delivered from prison, or he's going to die. And for Paul, that's gain. That's gain. Either way, he's going to be delivered. He's going to be saved from the circumstance that he is in. And, 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 and in this, he's confident. He's confident. He says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So that's what we learned last week. I, I want to look more closely at verse 20. We spent most of our time last week just on verse 19. Uh, I want to spend some time in verse 20 this morning. We covered it briefly. I read through it and kind of explained what was going on there, just surface level. But, but verse 20, in fact, verse 19 and verse 20 are, are just two amazing verses. All of Paul's writing is, is amazing. As you study it, you, you start to see just how deep and how, how truly inspired he was by the, by the Lord. But verse 20, verse 19 and verse 20 are remarkable verses. And, and verse 20 is like a parallel verse to verse 19. Let me show you what I mean. If you would look at verse 20, it says this. And it is my eager expectation and hope. Now let me just stop there because I want to clear some, something up. Uh, for us, uh, modern readers, uh, hope means something different than, than hope in the New Testament. Hope in the New Testament typically means something uh, uh, different than, than how we use it uh, in modern era. We use this word hope like this. I hope this is going to happen, but I'm not sure. Typically when someone in uh, English and modern English uses the word hope, that's, there's a level of uncertainty to the hope. But that's not how the New Testament uses this word. Hope typically comes with a level of assurance in the New Testament, not doubt. Right? It's a confident hope. It's a confidence about the future. And that's true in our passage because Paul says this, it is my eager expectation and hope. In fact, eager expectation is one word and he connects that word to hope. Eager expectation in Greek, it, it is one word, it's a long word. It's uh, a park car adokai, a park car adokai. It means an expected desire, an expected desire. There's two aspects of this word, uh, a desire and an expectation. Right? It's something you want and are expecting to get. Therefore, eagerly or eager expectation is really a good translation. But when you add this to hope, Paul is being very clear in what he's saying. He, he had a, a hopeful expectation, a, a sure expectation, a sure hope, a, a sure desire, something that he knows will happen. Paul was hoping for something that he knows will happen. And, and that, once again, just, just matches up with verse 19 where he starts by saying, and I know, and I know he was confident about this hope. Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. That no matter what happens, Paul is saying, Paul knows this, he will not be put to shame. 
That was Paul's confidence. That was Paul's desire. That was Paul's hope. Now, ashamed in, in Greek means put on shamed or, or to be dishonored or be disgraced. It's my, this is what Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's Paul's hope. That's Paul's desire. That's Paul's confidence. He is confident about this truth because he knows two things. Two things are going to happen. That he will not be at all ashamed. He's confident in that because Christ will be honored. He knows those two things are going to happen. He's confident about it. Now, what's interesting uh, is the Greek word for honored. Now, I'm going to say it, and you're going to recognize a part of it. It's mega luno. Mega luno. The first part, mega, means large or, or greater than or big. The, the word actually means to make much of. It, it, it could be translated magnify. In fact, that's a good translation. That's how the King James translates it. It, it is, Christ will be magnified in my body. Christ will be made much of. He'll be large in my body, magnified in my body. Now, the reason I point this out is because just like last week, we, we saw this in last week's uh, sermon, that verse 19, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Right? He, he alludes to an Old Testament passage. Well, he's doing the same thing in verse 20 by using two words. Again, I believe verse 19 and 20 are parallel texts. In fact, I think these two words or these two verses that um, Paul uh, writes, verse 19 and 20, are just poetic, beautiful, and extremely deep. In verse 19, he, he alludes to Job by quoting his words, where he says this in verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. That's word for word, Job 13, 16. And by quoting Job's words, we saw last week, he he brings a connection between Job's life and his life. Well, in verse 20, he's doing something very similar. This time, his confidence, his, his assurance, his hope comes from the words of a different Old Testament saint, this time, King David. Turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We start in verse 3. Psalm 34, verse 3. This is how the psalm goes. Starting in verse 3, it says, Oh, magnify. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but I've said this a number of times. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Uh, Paul and, and all the Pharisees and, and, and most of the New Testament believers would have been familiar with this Greek translation. And the word magnify in, in the Septuagint, it's the same Greek word used in Philippians 1.20. Christ will be magnified in my body. And I don't think this is an accident. Right? Look at verse 3. It says this, oh, magnify. Magnify who? We actually sang it this morning. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name 
together. David is exalting and magnifying the name of the Lord. Now, capital L-O-R-D means that's Yahweh, but in the Greek translation, that is Kyrios. And just so you know, and we're going to talk about this a lot when we get to chapter 2 of Philippians, Kyrios is the, is the word used for, for Jesus more than any other word, Lord. A title given to Jesus used more than any other word. And so when Paul says in Philippians 2, he has the name above every name. And you read this in, in Psalms, it's obvious that Paul is talking about Yahweh. That's Jesus' name. Again, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be what? Ashamed. Right? There's the other word. Again, this is, this is Paul's hope. Paul sought after the Lord. Paul, Paul will be delivered. He knows this. Paul is, is looking to him, therefore Paul shall never be ashamed. You know what Paul's doing here? He's taking the experiences of his life and, and he's interpreting them through the Bible, not the other way around. Do you get what I'm saying? He's not taking his experiences and therefore interpreting Scripture. He's taking Scripture and therefore using that to interpret his experiences. And, and, and this tells him very clearly that, that those that seek the Lord will, will never be ashamed. And, and he, he rests on that foundation in truth. I will not be ashamed. Because I am seeking the Lord. Even though Paul was being shamed by the world. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture that Paul was a part of. Being thrown into prison, being arrested, would have been extremely shameful in an honor-shame society. He was being shamed by the world, falsely accused, thrown into prison, beaten after beatings after beatings. Fellow believers are afflicting him with their words. Even though he's being shamed by the world, Paul knows this truth. Those who magnify the Lord, their faces shall never be ashamed. This is why he's so confident. He knows the word of God. He knows the Old Testament. He knows David's words. That's why in Philippians 1.20, he, he, he writes, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Like David, a man after God's own heart. Paul's life was, was all about Christ. It was all about Christ. It was all about magnifying, making much of Christ. Therefore, he knows, according to David... He shall never be ashamed. Now let me show you something else because there's, there's really two sides to this coin. Turn to Psalm 35, verse 22. This is just this one psalm over, and I believe these psalms are connected. Uh, uh, this is still David. I want you to hear what he writes. We'll start in verse 22. says this in verse 22, you, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my, my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O God, my, my Lord, O my God, according to your righteousness. David had enemies. 
and, and he's asking God to see what's going on and, and vindicate him. But, but then he says, according to your righteousness, this isn't just, hey, hey, wipe them out off the face of the earth. He's, he's asking God to be just. I mean, and just think of Paul in prison while he has brothers and, and non-believers afflicting him. I mean, this is Paul's heart. And let, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Again, David is crying out to God about his enemies, men afflicting David with their words. Listen to what David says. Verse 26. Let them be put to shame. And disappoint and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. I mean, that's just like Paul. There's people rejoicing at Paul's calamity. There's people rejoicing at Paul being arrested, his sufferings. These are men rejoicing at David's calamity. And David says this, let them be clothed with shame and dishonored who magnify, let me stop there, magnify who? Who magnify themselves against me. According to these two Psalms, those who magnify the Lord will not be ashamed, according to David. And those who magnify themselves will be ashamed. I mean, this is just a common theme we see throughout the entire Old Testament. It's just consistent throughout the entire Old Testament. Really, it carries on into the New Testament. I mean, just think about the stories of the Old Testament. Moses magnified God, was not put to shame. Pharaoh magnified himself, he was put to shame. King Saul magnified himself, he was shamed. King David magnified God and he was not put to shame. The prophets magnified God and, and they were not put to shame, even though many were killed and dishonored in this life, at the end, they were not put to shame. Yet the evil kings of Israel magnified themselves. They were shamed. Daniel magnified God. He was not put to shame. Nebuchadnezzar magnified himself. He was put to shame until he repented and turned and magnified God and was placed back into his position. And you can just keep going. I mean, just think of the New Testament. I think of King Herod. Magnified himself called himself a god and was eaten by worms. <laughs> Listen, if you magnify yourself in this life, if, if you make this life all about you, not God, not Christ, eventually, in this life or the next, you will be put to shame. But, if you magnify the, the name of the Lord, if you magnify Christ with your life, Guess what? You shall never be ashamed. Paul says in verse 20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, whether in life or death, whether in this life or the next, Christ will be magnified in my body. Therefore, I will not be at all ashamed. I mean, this is foundational to Paul's conviction. Back, turn back to Philippians 1, verse 21 this time. 
Philippians 1, verse 21 is the heart of Paul's conviction. And it says this, For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can put it this way when you look at the context and you, and you look at the foundation of, of this claim in verse 21. You could say this, to live is to magnify Christ, therefore to die is gain, where I will not be at all ashamed. This is foundational to who Paul is as a person. Paul's conviction is simply Christ. And the hope he has in him. Which brings me to my second point this morning. We see Paul's confidence. Now let's look at Paul's conviction. Again, look at verse 21. It says this. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I mean, let me start by saying, isn't that just a great quote? I mean, can you think of any other quote in Scripture that get, gets to the heart of Christianity so clearly and precisely as, as Philippians 1.21? Or, or maybe better yet, can you think of, of any quote that explains our convictions as, as Christians as, uh, in so few words? As to me, to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. I mean, that's just beautiful. When you add the context of verse 20, Paul is saying, again, I will not be at all ashamed. Because Christ will be magnified, whether by life or death. And, and because of this, to live is Christ and to die, gain. Homer Kent Jr. writes this. Dying at the hands of Rome was no tragedy in Paul's eyes. Such a death would bear added witness to the gospel. It would confirm that Paul's faith was steadfast to the end, and it would serve as the gateway to Christ's presence for Paul. Therefore, Paul can say joyfully, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, that's the heart of Christianity. James Montgomery Boyce writes this about Philippians 1, 21. It is, it is a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart. Christianity. I mean, that's our conviction. So short, but so profound. I said this first service, and it's off my notes, but I'm going to say it again. We live in a convictionless society. In postmodernism, when it says there is no absolute truth, you can also add there is, ab there is no conviction. In fact, there's only one conviction in our culture, and that is there are no convictions. <laughs> you know, it's a fun game to play to say there, there is no truth, or all truths are equal, until you start seeing evil in the world. And you have to come to some conclusion. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it often. Listen, we have to be a people of conviction. To, to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. And, and here's one reason we have to be people of conviction. Because when the world starts looking around for answers, they need to see a church that has convictions. Not a church that looks like society. 
this is conviction. I mean, Paul had conviction. That's why he's in jail. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's short but profound. In fact, in Greek, it's actually shorter than in English. A literal translation could be this. There's no vowels in in the Greek. It's just simply to live Christ, to die gain. I mean, how beautiful are those two statements? Especially when you put them together. In fact, I would say this. The second statement, to to die is gain, only makes sense if the first statement's about Christ. If to live is, is anything other than Christ, then death is lost. I mean, think about it. If to live is your career, then to die is to lose. If to live is to get wealthy, then, then to die is loss. If to live is to collect toys in this life, then, then to die is loss. If there's anything you put first in your life other than Christ, then death is loss. If to live is to enjoy hobbies, to travel, uh, to be entertained, to be comfortable. If to live is to gain power, influence, possessions, prestige, social standing, or success. If to live is to, to be with family and friends. If it's to raise children or grandchildren, which is all good things. But, but if, if to live is anything other than Christ, then death is loss. Verse 21 only makes sense if Christ is at the center of your life. To live is Christ, then and only then is death gain. You know, Philippians is just one of the most quoted books in Scripture. I don't know if you've recognized that. It wasn't until I started studying it till till I re- realized that. Let me just give you some examples, and this is just just a small sampling. Philippians one twenty seven, a famous quote: "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." Philippians two three: Do not. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.12, work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How about Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say what? I mean, we know these quotes. Philippians 4.11, uh, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is a small example. I probably didn't even say your favorite quote. But there's one verse, maybe next to Philippians 1.21, but there's one verse I think is quoted more than any other verse, and, it, and it's often quoted out of context, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I don't want to judge anyone's motives here. That's not what I'm doing, but I see professional athletes with this, like all over them, on their shoes, on their helmets, in the lockers. In fact, Steph Curry is like my favorite player. And as a Laker fan, that hurts, I know. Um, I just love watching that guy play. And he writes this on his shoes. And again, I don't want to judge him. He claims to be a Christian. But, but if, if you buy Steph Curry's shoes, uh, Under Armour has actually put this verse on the bottom of the shoe. 
The story is, I don't know if it's true or not, one of the reasons he didn't go with Nike is Nike refused to put the verse on the shoe, so he went to Under Armour that, that would put the verse there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But he doesn't quote it that way. It actually just says this. I can do all things dot, dot, dot. Now, again, I don't want to judge. I don't know Steph Curry. I don't want to judge his heart. Uh, but, but I'm guessing for a lot of these people, this verse is just taken out of context. But could you imagine? At least this would impress me. It would get me thinking what this guy truly believed if a professional athlete put Philippians 121 on their shoe. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Meaning, to live is not basketball. To live is not football or baseball. To live is not fame or riches. To live is Christ. And therefore, no matter how good this life is, to die is gain. It's way better. That's Paul's conviction. That's his conviction. That's his passion. This is why Paul was in prison. This is why Paul was willing to lose everything and and really did lose everything in this life. Because for Paul to live is Christ, and therefore Paul could joyfully look at an uncertain future and say with joy, to die is gain. Church, don't worry about me. To die is gain. If I get out to live as Christ, if, if they kill me, to die is gain. Just be happy. Just be joy-filled. That's Paul's conviction. Man. I, I say this in humility because I, and I struggle with that. I, I, I hope that's, that's said about me. I hope that is my conviction fully. But let's, let's look at this statement. I mean, what, what, what does Paul mean by to live as Christ? I think in the context, simply to, to magnify Christ. I mean, that's the near context here. I think that's mostly what Paul is saying. To live as Christ is to make much of Christ. His life is all about making Christ's name known. Like the psalm that we sung. I mean, that's the context. To, to make much of Christ. And, and in doing this, he knows I will not be put to shame. But I think there's more more to it than just that. If we just look at Paul's other, other writings, let me just read to you Galatians 2.20. It says this, And I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Meaning, Christ's whole or Paul's whole identity was simply Christ. His old self was dead, and his new self lived by faith in the Son of God. I mean, ever since Paul's salvation on the road to Damascus, he, he was a new man with a new identity, born again. He no longer was a Pharisee, honored, rich, a, a self-righteous uh, person. After Damascus, his new identity was simply Christ. That's who he was more than anything else. For Paul to live is Christ. And this meant, meant to live is to magnify Christ, glorify Christ, 
be faithful to Christ, obey Christ, walk with Christ, commune with Christ, trust Christ, have a relationship with Christ, have faith in Christ, to be in Christ. For Paul, his identity was Christ. And that means to die is gain. Because think about it. Death for the Christian means being brought into the presence of Christ. I mean, if your life is all about Christ, then then there is nothing better that can happen to you than being brought into the presence of Christ. To live as Christ, to die is gain. I mean, those two statements go together. They go together. Before we move on to the the next point, I just want to ask you a question. Is this true for you? I mean, does Philippians 1.21 describe you? Does it define you? Is this your conviction? To live as Christ, to die as gain? Are, are you magnifying Christ with your life? Is Christ your identity above anything else in this life? Let me say this. If there is something you're putting before Christ in your life, repent. Turn from it. Seek Christ with all your heart. Trust in him and his death on the cross. Ask God to to change your heart so that Philippians 1.21 can be true about you. To to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let that be our conviction here at Country Oaks. Which brings me to my last point this morning. Paul's conflict. Paul's conflict. We see his confidence. We see his conviction. But then, in verses 22 through 24, we see a conflict within Paul's soul. Once again, and I've said this a number of times in the first part of Philippians, but after studying, I'm just kind of amazed at just how much Paul opens up his heart. I mean, this this is just intimate letter to a church he loves. I can't think of very many places, maybe the end of Romans 7 or the end of 2 Timothy where Paul just opens up his heart in such an amazing way. Now, Paul was just a man, but he was inspired by God, and he was a man that, that's had big impact in all of our lives, being used by God. And to see inside his heart is pretty amazing. He lets this church at Philippi, this church he loves so much, he, he writes about an internal battle that he's struggling with, a conflict within his soul. While he sits under house arrest, while, while he has a lot of time to think, I'm sure, when he wakes up in the middle of the night, this is probably what's going on in his soul as he's thinking, joyfully. If truly to live is Christ and to die is gain, here's the conflict. Which one should I choose? Now, it's a joyful conflict. Right? They're, they're both good options to Paul. I said first service that it's like being a, in between a rock and a hard place, but, but that gives it an analogy of it's, it's not good options. This is more like being in between a, a pillow and a soft place, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's a win-win situation. They're both great options. So, so he doesn't know which one he should desire. Now, let me stop here and be very clear what's going on. Paul knows he has no right to take his own life, so that, that has nothing to do with this. 
That would be a sin, and, and his life is about Christ, so he's not going to sin. That's not an option. It's not even a thought in here. What he's debating within his own soul is which one should he desire? Should he desire to be set free from prison and, and live for Christ? Or should he desire to be put to death and therefore be with Christ? An internal conflict, a, a joy-filled one, again, within his heart and soul. This is his intimate thoughts. He, he's sharing with his church, and, and because of the inspiration of God, and, uh, he shares it with us. So I'm just going to read it because I, I don't want to make comments right off the bat. Let me just read it, and, and here's Paul's intimate thoughts. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is much more is more necessary on your account. Paul is hard pressed between these two desires. There are a few things he, he wants. The desire to, to live for Christ versus the desire to die and be with Christ. That's Paul's in, internal conflict that he opens up and shares with us. He, he's really again stuck between two options and, and two great options in Paul's view. If the Romans let him go, that's great. That's great because to live is Christ. In verse 24, it says to remain in the flesh or, or to live is, is more necessary in your account. There's still ministry to be done. But if the Romans put me to death, well, well great. <laughs> gain. Right? To die is gain. In fact, listen to what Paul says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. In fact, the Greek is kind of funny. It, it, it's literally much more better. <laughs> Far, far better. So Paul has, has two great options. But we, before we look at his conclusion, because I want to look at the conclusion, look at verse 23 again. I want to point something out that I think is, is interesting and insightful. Paul says this in verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Now, he's talking about death there. It's clear in the context here, but, but he doesn't say the word death. What's he say? Depart. Depart. It's an interesting word. I think this gives us, I pointed out, because I think it gives us great insight into death for the Christian. For the Christian to die is to depart and be with Christ. It's not to go to purgatory. It's an unbiblical doctrine. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. It's not to... to, to to go to some kind of soul sleep. You won't find that in Scripture. It's not, it's not to just go to nothingness. Okay, for the Christian to die is to depart. Well, what's that mean? What's depart mean? Well, it's a common word in antiquity, so that's useful because we know kind of exactly what that meant in its context. It means to, to leave something behind and go somewhere else. In fact, there's this, this idea in the word that we're leaving something behind permanently, going somewhere else like packing up a, a tent breaking camp and moving on it's used in that context often it's used to describe a slave or a prisoner being set free from prison they would depart from prison it's used often for ships departing from a port 
this idea of a person being transported from one place to another. And, and as I was studying this word, I, I couldn't get out of my mind an airport. You know, I know there was no airports back in Paul's day, but the idea is still there. In college, I, I actually flew a lot because I played basketball, and we would fly to all these different tournaments and different teams that we played against. And then after college, I have visited a number of missionaries, and I have family in Alaska and Australia, and have flown out there a number of times. And then I went to, to school in Louisville, and I, I flew out there, I think, 10 different times. So I've just done a ton of flying in my life. In fact, we were counting the flights that um, Autumn was on before the age of four, I think, and it was like 17 different flights that she was on. Um, so we've flown a lot as a family. Personally, I've flown a ton. And and so I'm very familiar with airports. And when you get to the airports, there's just two different directions you can go, right? Departure and arrival. Here's something I've noticed. Every time I fly, just about every single time, there's an excitement when I'm leaving. Because I love flying. I love going places. I love to travel. No matter where I'm going, there's this excitement. I love airports. I know some of you hate them. I love them. Like one of the few places I could just sit and read for hours as I'm waiting for the plane to come. Like, it's delayed? Great. Keep going. But every time I fly home after a trip, when I depart from the airport to go home, there, there's just a peace and comfort and joy knowing I'm on my way home and that I have a home and a place I like to be. I think that feeling is just kind of a small taste of what Paul is describing here. When Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. This world is not our home. Our home is with Christ. But let me tweak this analogy a little bit because I don't think it captures exactly what's going on in Paul's life very well. I have a cousin who flew helicopters for the Marines, and during the Afghan war, his helicopter crashed uh, behind enemy lines, and him and his co-pilot survived it. Uh, They had minor injuries, but Nothing serious, but they're behind enemy lines, and, and they had to wait for a period of time until the, the helicopters that were with them could go back and refuel and come back and pick them up. So they had to wait there for, for some time in, in enemy lines. And, and he's told me this story, and I actually have seen pictures, and I've just often wondered what that would be like. I mean, being stuck behind enemy lines, not able to rest or sleep, always on guard, always looking over your shoulder. I mean... Think about the hostages in the Gaza Strip right now. What relief it was when my cousin finally got picked up by the helicopters and the helicopters departed from enemy territory. I mean, what relief will there be if if Israel can actually save a number of those hostages and we should pray for their salvation, that they would be saved? Can you imagine the joy, the comfort, the peace when when they depart from the Gaza Strip and and make it home if that happens? Listen, I think this is a better analogy because just think of Paul's life. Beating after beating after beating, suffering after suffering after suffering, being whipped, being stoned, all the dangers, all the imprisonments, people turning on him. Brothers, fellow Christians afflicting him with their words. This is why Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I'm in enemy territory. You know, we are too. It just doesn't feel that way (laughs) all the time. Paul is ready to go home. And it's this thought. It's this thought that makes verses 25 and 26 really remarkable. 
Because here's Paul's conclusion. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this. Remember what he just said, that remaining alive would be better for the church. And I wanted to stop and say this, a local church. He's writing to the church at Philippi. He's not writing to the universal church. He's writing to the church at Philippi and saying, it's better for you that I stay. A local church that he loves, a physical church, a, a, a group of people that, that made up a church body that were definitely not perfect. <laughs> he says, convinced of this, that me staying is better for you. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for the progress of your, uh, and joy in the faith, so that, that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Did you hear that? Paul's desire is to stay. To stay to minister to, to the church. I mean, he's weighing these two options out. He says, this one's far better, but this is my desire to stay and minister to the church. And he says for two reasons, that, that Christ will be glorified, that's clear in verse 26, so that, that in me you may have ample cause uh, to glory in Christ Jesus. Again, for Paul, it's all about making much of Jesus, right? Making much of Christ. But there's a second reason, that the church may be joy-filled. He says, for, the, for your progress and joy in the faith. Think about that for a second. Paul wants to stay in enemy territory. That's his desire because he loves the church. It's like a general not wanting to leave, his, uh, leave the enemy territory because his soldiers are still fighting there. I mean, that's Paul's heart. He's opened up his heart, and that's what we see. Now, there's a lesson here, an application that I think is extremely important that that the American church just completely misses. And when I say American church, I'm talking about those that are Christians within America. There's a lesson here that we, we, we need to see. Paul's heart shows us something. It shows us the importance of the church. And it's popular today just to brush off the church as unimportant. You can be a Christian, you don't need the church. Or even worse, not just unimportant, it's very popular today to bash the church as ineffective, not necessary, ugly, hypocritical. And you know, a lot of those things are true. We're not perfect. Christ is perfect. We're not. But listen. Listen to Paul's love for the church, for a local church. Again, this is not church universal. This is, this is a group of people in Philippi that meet together, that he loves. In fact, at the end of uh, the portion in, in Corinthians where he writes out all the sufferings that he'd gone through, and he says, and added to all this is the anxiety I have for the church is, plural. It's not the universal church. Paul loved the church. He loved the church so much that 
he ends up desiring to stay in enemy territory with, with all the dangers, with all the sufferings that, that has been promised to him to come. He desires to stay because he loves the church that much. He says, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's ministry to the church was not done, so, so he truly believes God's going to keep him alive, that he's going to, to end up free and seeing them again. Because that's his desire, and he knows his ministry's not done. This really just shows you the importance of the church. And it makes sense in light of the rest of this passage, right? In light of Paul's love for Christ. Remember, for Paul to live is Christ, right? Well, if, if Paul truly loved Christ... He's going to love the church because why? Because the church is the, the what? Bride of Christ. If you truly love Christ, if your life is, is all about Christ, if, if to live is Christ is true about you, then, then, then you're going to love the church too. With all its flaws, with all its ugliness, I mean, when you talk about ugly churches, look at the, the churches that Paul loved. <laughs> Read First and Second Corinthians. And even the church at Philippi, this beautiful church, he's going to address this, this division that's starting to happen between two girls fighting against each other. Yet Paul loved the church because it was the bride of Christ. So that's Paul's conclusion. I should have had four points. Paul's confidence, Paul's convictions, Paul's conflict, and then finally his conclusion. He wanted to stay and be freed for the benefit of the church. Let me end by saying this this morning. Church is important. It's important. Listen, if you've been taught somewhere or you have this belief that you don't need the church, it's not that important, I can tell you one thing, it didn't come from Scripture. It came from somewhere else. It did not come from Scripture. Church is important. It's the bride of Christ. I'm talking about the body, the people, the visible church, country hoaxed, you guys. Therefore, it only makes sense if you truly love Christ, you're going to love his bride. Lord, our Father, God, I, I come again and just thank you, Lord, for inspiring Paul to write this. I mean, he's just a man, but when you opened up his heart, all we see is Christ. He, he, he shows us his internal thoughts, the conflict within his soul, and, and all it is is Christ. Either to live with Christ or, or to die and be with Christ, but it's all about Christ, Lord. I pray that that would be our conviction. I pray that we would be all about Christ, that that would be our identity, that, that it could truly be said that, that Nathan, for Nathan, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that I believe that and follow that and live in light of that. I pray that that is conviction for all of us, Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. God, I pray that we would be an example to the, 
the culture that we're in, that they would see Christ through us, Lord, that we would be able to lead them to Christ. I also pray, Lord, that we would love the bride of Christ, that because of our love for Christ, we, we would love the church, that we would love what Christ loved, that the, what he loved so much that he died for on the cross. And, and I know that's the universal church, Lord, but, but it's manifested in the local church, that we would love the local body, that we would love each other, that we would represent you well, Lord, that we would magnify your name, and in that we would know we would not be put ashamed, that we're putting all, all of who we are, Lord, into one truth, that, that you deserve to be glorified, that you deserve to be magnified, Lord, and, and that we will find joy in doing that in this life or the next, God. Let us have that same conviction. In your son's name we pray. Amen.